Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks, Dan, and welcome to this episode. In our last show, we commenced the discussion of how God guides us. In that episode, episode 14, I retold the story of J. Sidlow Baxter, a famed preacher of the 20th century. He, by ship, made his way from Canada to New Zealand, and every evening, the captain of the huge ship took his dinner with his guest in the dining hall, except for one particular evening. Baxter asked one of the crew where the captain was, and the crewman answered that up to that point the ship had been guided by radar. But now, radar will not do. They were entering a port that had a dangerous coral reef underneath the surface with only a narrow gap to maneuver the ship to harbor. And this required the captain's presence on the bridge, guiding the ship safely into port. Well, dear friends, we too need a captain on the bridge of our ship, our tiny little vessel in this wide old world of dangerous obstacles. And our ship is our very own lives, and heaven is our port of destiny. Oh, it's so comforting to know the captain is on the bridge. But how does he guide us into the harbor of heaven? Well, my answer is... There are six markers that he uses to steer us where he would lead us. These markers act like ocean buoys marking the safe lane for boats to travel. God can speak to us in numerous ways. Of course, there is the Bible, but the Bible's not the only way in which he communicates his will. He often uses others to speak wisdom or direction into our lives. Sometimes he uses circumstances to providentially move us in a certain direction. And yes, the Lord can sway your judgment with an implanted thought or impression. But no matter how many ways the Lord uses to communicate to us, all of these ways must be submitted to biblical test that I'm calling markers or buoys upon the sea of life. All of His ways must be placed under examination and scrutinized. Once again, let me say it, the subjective must submit to the objective. Now, we discussed in our last show the first marker, which is our neutrality. And if you haven't heard episode 14, stop this podcast now and go listen to it first. Neutrality is you arriving to the place that your desires are not disturbing the waters so that you can't see clearly. In other words, your desires don't interfere with you being able to discern the captain's leadership. If you desire a particular outcome, then it will be very difficult to choose any other conclusion. You will mistakenly see your desire as the will of God. Your heart will deceive you into believing that what you want has to be God's plan. However, if you can surrender your desire to a place where you desire God's will more than anything else, more than your strong desire, then God can lead you. You see, your hand must come off 
your ship's wheel, and then the captain can steer. Well, let's move to the second marker, which is the Bible itself. Over and again, I've emphasized the primacy and sufficiency of Scripture. God has given us an immovable and steadfast boundary. If he had not done so, then we'd be, be, we'd be open to every wind of doctrine and practice. We would not know what he expected or what displeased him. Without the Bible, we'd be subject to all sorts of lies, all sorts of deceptions, not knowing what's true and false. Oh, what a precious gift is the Word of God. The Bible's more than a roadmap, friend. It's the revelation of our Father and our God's heart from its pages. We know His will, His ways, and His wonders. It's the record of God and His redemptive enterprise. It's the revelation of God and His glory. And by it, we know the way that we should go, the direction of our journey, and the means and the method of travel. Finally, the Bible is the final word of authority given to us as the final rule of faith and practice. Creeds and confessions may be helpful, yes, but they're not sufficient for absolute authority. Pastors and church officers are indeed necessary, God-given, but they're not the ultimate jurisdiction. God has spoken and given us His Word, and His Word is final. Therefore, everything must be brought to the light of Scripture and examined and tested. For you see, the Bible proves all things. The Bible says you and I are to test all things. Well, there's no testing without some objective standard. All desires, directions, and determinations must be judged by this one standard, the Scripture. Whatever you may think to be God's will must be evaluated, and it must pass the test of the Bible. But you may ask, how can the Scripture be a marker or test of itself, since the primary way God speaks to us is in and through His Word? How does the Bible test the Bible? Well, that's a very important question, and the answer is a plurality. First, what you may interpret the Bible to say must be examined by the remainder of Scripture. The Bible is its own best commentary, and in this case, its best interpreter which will either confirm or not your interpretation of a specific test. We never establish a doctrine or a conviction on just one verse. Both the immediate and the general context of Scripture must bear upon the one text you are interpreting. Any conclusion that does not consider the context is more than likely wrong. Second, your understanding of a text must also come under the test of scrutiny of these other five markers. If it is accurate, it will survive the examination. I've stated before that God commands you to test all spirits, which includes the Holy Spirit himself. Surely all Scripture is inspired, but your interpretation of it is not inspired. Your conclusions must be placed under the microscope and be dissected and analyzed. They must be proven true or false and never assumed to be either. The Bible is its own best test. Marker number three is the wise counsel of godly men and women. The Bible says, 
Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14. I hate to burst your bubble and cause you alarm, but you and I don't know everything. Now, please don't panic. But it's true. We don't have every fact about every situation at our disposal. And even if we did... We couldn't process it all. Humility in the end is a confidence that we don't know all or that we can't do everything. Humility knows and believes our limitations and acts accordingly. The wisest act is to seek good advice. Again, quoting from the Proverbs, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. Look to those in your life who display a proven track record of godly wisdom. Avoid the worldly wise man. That's not the kind of wisdom you need, no. Go to those who love God and His ways and has learned God's ways. Submit yourself to them, praying that the Lord will use them to show you if you've heard from God or not. Your confidence is not in men, no, but it's in God who can use others in your lives to impart His wisdom to you. They can help you see whether what you think was the Lord speaking to you was Him or not. The fourth marker is very similar to the third. It's the local church. Now, what is the difference between the council of a few wise people and the entire church, you ask? Well, there are just some things you need counsel that doesn't affect the body of believers which you are a member. Therefore, you need not bother the entire body with the matter, but only consult a few godly and wise members of the church. However, there may come a decision that will impact your local church. For example, a job offer comes from a company that would require you to move and leave your church. Don't you think your absence will have some bearing on the church. If you're a faithful member, it will. How then can you make a decision that will affect others and not give them opportunity to pray with you and determine if it's the Lord's will for you to move or not? The decision will in some ways, and not just a little, but very well greatly affect the entire church. How can we think it right to disrupt the life of the body of Christ and not let them have a part in the process of testing whether or not God is leading. Now, I'm sure right now many of you think I'm taking things a bit too far. You don't agree. You reason that this matter affects you much more than it does the church. The job offer has come to you, and it will be you packing and leaving and moving. You argue the church will stay, and it will continue as it always does. Well, my friend... Welcome to the modern American low view of the local church. The local church is not thought of as she should be. Her esteem in our eyes and heart is below her real worth and value. I want to say, if the church should continue as it always has, without you being there means two things. First, it means you've played little to no role in its function in life. You've been like most who are on the membership role, a spectator sitting on the church pew, observing the worship service. You're not a vital part, and you're not doing as the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Listen, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, 
according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, end of quote. You're not supplying your share to the growth of the body, thus your absence will not impact the church at all. And secondly, it probably also means that you're not alone in your sin of not being an active, caring, and living part of the church. In most local churches, the sad fact is less than 20% of the church is doing all that's necessary to keep the church going. The remaining 80% are like leeches living on the ministry of the few healthy members. The local church is to be one of the most important entities in your life. The Bible demands that we build our lives around it and not the other way around. We are to sacrifice ourselves for her well-being, seeing that she's the bride, the beloved, the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, sadly, the church does not hold such honor in most of her members' hearts, and therefore they can't see why they should invite the church to help them to determine the Lord's will. No wonder, no wonder our local churches are so sick and anemic. Well, the fifth marker. The fifth marker is circumstances. Another way to say it is God's providence. The Lord acts in time and guides us by hemming us into a particular course, much like he did Israel when he led them out of Egypt. Israel came to the Red Sea, only there to discover later the Egyptian army had followed them. Now trapped between a sea and a hostile army, they panicked. And what they failed to see is that God had orchestrated the events to once and for all deliver them from the Egyptians. You see, my friend, he makes all circumstances fulfill his ultimate purposes. Often, what you surmise to be a grievous occurrence is simply God testing your faith and he working things to your good. You may have wanted to go in a specific direction in your life, but the Lord blockaded the way to keep you from it. And then he redirected redirected your pathway. And he did it all by providence, arranging the events of life to ensure you would do his will. The Apostle Paul experienced this several times, and perhaps the most famous of all of those occurrences is found in Acts chapter 16. Let's begin reading with verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, and after they had come to Mycenae, They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. On another occasion, Paul himself said, quote, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. Yes, the Lord can even use the enemy to help direct us to the desired end. Therefore, if you believe the Lord has spoken to you about his will and direction for your life, then certainly circumstances 
will have to open and present themselves for the fulfillment. If they don't, then whatever you thought you heard from the Lord was not the Lord. It wasn't from him. Whatever God has said will come to pass, comes to pass. It's here I would share counsel with someone who believes the Lord has told them that something's going to occur in the future. What do you do with that information? Well, here it is. You make it run the gauntlet of these six markers, five if it doesn't involve the entire local church. And should it pass all six markers, here's what you do. Hold on, listen. I would say to you, don't do anything. Go on with your life and let God put together the events necessary for that thing to come to pass. Do not make the mistake of Abraham and try to help God keep his promises. When Abraham did that, an Ishmael was born, the son of flesh. How do you really know that it was the Lord who spoke to you? And the only sure test is whether or not it comes to fruition, if it comes to pass. On something like this, this is the only way to be sure. Now, yes, the Lord can speak so definitively that you know that you know it's the Lord. The word comes with full assurance, but there are times when he speaks and he purposefully does not grant such assurance that it's him who's speaking. The prophet Jeremiah knew both of these experiences. He knew definitely when God had spoken, it came with power and assurance. And then there were times God spoke to him and he wasn't sure it was the Lord. A case in point is Jeremiah chapter 32. The prophet's in the midst of the king's prison. The Babylonians have laid siege against the city, and it's a matter of time when they penetrate the walls and conquer the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah has prophesied this day for years, and now, now it's here, it's come to pass, but he is in prison. And then the Lord speaks to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, by my field which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. And in the next verse, Jeremiah writes, Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or not. Therefore, let me repeat it. Jeremiah said after his cousin came and asked Jeremiah to purchase the field, quote, Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. End of quote. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that Jeremiah was not sure he had heard God correctly. He's not sure that what he thought was God speaking to him was really the Lord. We hear that and we're amazed, thinking, how could the prophet not know definitely that it was the Lord? He had heard the voice of God for years. He knew what God sounded like, and Jeremiah repeated what God had told him. That's why he's in jail. It's because he did know the voice of the Lord. But this time, Jeremiah is not for sure, meaning it probably was not an audible voice, 
But the Lord used Jeremiah's conscious inner voice. And why would he not wonder if he had discerned correctly that the Lord had spoken to him? I mean, think about it, friend. This is not a very logical time to be buying real estate when a foreign invader is about to take over the nation and to compound the real estate deal, you're in prison. It simply didn't make sense to Jeremiah why he should buy property at such a time. But when it happened, just as he was told, then he knew he'd heard the Lord. And so I say, upon the authority of Scripture, if God has said something is going to happen, then it will. And until then, keep doing what you're doing. The Lord does not need you to help him keep his word. Well, the sixth and final marker is the peace of God that passes understanding. The peace of God. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, we read, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Marvin Vincent, Greek scholar, comments on this phrase, rule in your hearts. He says it means literally, let it be the umpire. It's a word that comes from some of the Greek games of that era. Just as we have umpires who rule our sporting events today, the peace of God is to be the umpire, calling the shots, letting you know you're traveling in the way the Lord would have you to go. The famous commentator Lightfoot says, quote, wherever there's a conflict of motives or impulses or reasons, peace of Christ must step in and decide which is to prevail, end of quote. The Holy Spirit communicates to your spirit that either makes the heart to be at peace or to disturb the heart. Many times, many times I've had this sense that something was not right and I couldn't proceed because I simply didn't have peace. Instead, I had this disquieted spirit. Every time I obeyed that check in my heart, I have averted failure. But oh, every time I ignored it, I've encountered disappointment and setback. The Lord has power to make us know His peace. Oftentimes, His peace is unexplainable. It's as the Bible says, passes understanding. In other words, it's beyond our limited knowledge. It doesn't make sense, but we're at peace when normally we wouldn't be so calm. At peace is to work like an arbitrator. Or as Vincent said, like an umpire, an umpire, the one who controls the games. He ends all disputes between the teams competing. He calls the shots. He determines equity. It's his word that's final. Peace is the voice of the Lord. It's a marker that you must not avoid. Now, as I conclude today, I want to tell you a story that illustrates the importance of all six of these factors or markers to be in play, coming together, converging as the Lord's governance. And it, too, is a story about another preacher aboard a ship. We are keeping to our maritime metaphor. A distinguished English Baptist pastor, F.B. Meyer, a contemporary and friend to D.L. Moody, was returning to England from preaching in Northern Ireland. The ship sailed from Belfast and landed in Liverpool at night. Dr. Meyer and a few others were standing on the deck near the bridge. 
The November night was very dark, and the chilly waters looked treacherous. Nearing the port of myriads of nightlights shone reflecting in the water, and that great number of lights bothered Meyer. He called out to the captain on the bridge, Captain, how do you know the way to steer with that confusing mass of lights in front of you? The captain invited Myers to come up on the bridge, and he would show him how he planned on navigating the large ship. He said to the preacher, Well, it's really very simple. Do you see that big light over to the left? And do you see that other big light over there to the right of it? And do you see that third outstanding light further still this way? Well, now, keep your eyes on all three lights and see what happens. Mr. Meyer did as the captain instructed first. The big light on the left began to move until it coincided with the light in the middle, and then the ship veered slowly until the light gradually merged into the last light. There now, the captain said. All I have to do is see that those three big lights become one. Then I go straight forward. Well, the same is true with us. When these six markers line up, when the Word of God, circumstances, the counsel of others, the peace of God, when these things line up with our circumstances and they make one great light, then you go straight ahead, confident you're being guided by God. And one last thing, friend. Please, do not be afraid that you will fail or worse, be deceived. A child of God who wants to do God's will, God's way, for God's reasons will be protected by God from deception. But if you're wanting God to do something for your reasons, then yes, you're open to every demonic suggestion, every trick and turn of this ungodly world. You're at the whim of your own emotions. The Holy Spirit will not be able to lead you because you do not in the end want God's will but your own. You will manipulate the Bible. You will mistake your desires for the Holy Spirit. You'll not rightly discern circumstances, and you will, you will walk in much sorrow. But if you truly want God to be glorified in your life, then you don't have to fear being deceived, friend. No, no. God protects his children. He is the good shepherd that leads, feeds, and protects his sheep. Go in peace and in faith in your good shepherd. Well, thank you for listening today. And, and please, don't forget about the other resources of Real Truth Matters Ministries. Real Truth Matters is simply the name of our ministry, my ministry, and our website, where you'll find a host of resources. You can order my book, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation, Plus that, you can find hundreds of sermons, either in audio, video, or written format. Also, you can find on that website our digital magazine that we produced for several years. Those articles are still timely and true as when they were first published. Go and read them. They'll be a great blessing to you. And oh, yes, one more thing. We'd like to do another Q&A, so if you have any questions, questions, just send them to us by email to web, W-E-B, at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Please include your name, because one special questioner will receive a signed copy of my new book, The Fight of Faith. On behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in. May the Lord 
richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.